You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to begin by uh, asking you guys a question. I've got a picture that uh, is going to be up behind me here. I want to ask you guys if you, uh, if you know what this is all about. Has anybody in their life, have they watched the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II? Uh, anybody alive at that time? I know there's a, there's a couple of us, a few of us who were alive at that time and maybe remember this uh, coming on the television. Uh, but for the rest of us, maybe you've watched The Crown on Netflix uh, and you've seen that they, they talk about the coronation of the Queen. Not endorsing that show in any means, but uh, the coronation is a, was a, a massive episode on there. And so for those who remember it in the real life and us who in the virtual life have seen this, it was a pretty big deal. Coronation of Our Queen was, was a huge deal on June 2nd, 1953. It all began at 11.15 uh, in the morning. The whole nation of England dropped what they were doing to watch the Queen's coronation. There was 27 million uh, Brits tuned in their TVs to watch this. 10 million of them also tuned in their radios. Uh, that was actually more than the population of England at that time. They were stopping everything they were doing just to, just to hear, just to see the splendor of this royal event. They wanted to hear the horse's feet on the pavement. They wanted to see the, the regalia. They wanted to see the jewels, the dress, the pomp. The people came from all over the world. And they camped in the streets just to get a spot along the route, the procession route. And as the queen finally rode, rode by in her golden chariot, pulled by eight horses and led and protected by 30,000 soldiers and police, and there was also three million people in the streets just cramming it to just, just to get sight of her. And as, as she would go by, they would wave their, their British flags and they would shout, God save the queen. Her coronation was a huge deal. Now as we turn to the scripture today in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 19, we're going to witness another coronation. We're going to witness the long-awaited arrival of Jesus Christ to his people, to the holy city of Jerusalem. And like the queen's coronation, he too is going to ride in like royalty. He's going to be honored by many from, from all over the known world at that time. He's going to be welcomed by people waving branches, by shouts of praise, because it's his time to arrive. It's his time to be revered. It's his time to be crowned. It's his time to reveal what he has been concealing. That he is the redeeming king. He is a just prophet, judge, and that he is the restoring son of God. As we go to God's word, let's, let's go to him in prayer and ask for the Spirit's help so that we can understand what is before us. We always need the Holy Spirit who, who wrote the scriptures to be illuminating it to our hearts so that we can understand and know it and apply it. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. 
Lord, we thank you that you have written it and you have written it clearly and that we can understand it because we have the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would use it today, that you would impress it upon our hearts, that you would illuminate it to our minds so that it is not only just knowledge, but it is also wisdom and it's also saving wisdom and it's good news that demands a response. And so as we look at your word today and we see the coronation of our King Jesus, Lord, may we be praising you from our hearts. Hosanna, save us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're catching up where we took off from last week along the, the route to Jerusalem. Remember, they were coming from Jericho. They were getting very close, Jesus and his disciples, and also this large group. We also remember that he has a, a new disciple with him, Bartimaeus, from last week. If you, you missed that, we're going to load up that sermon uh, so that you have it if you weren't here. What we're going to see is that Jesus was more than a man from Nazareth. He was more than a Nazarene. He was more than just a healer. He's, he's more than just a rabbi. We're going to see that his arrival will reveal that he was royal. His lineage is ancient. He is the Messiah. We're also going to see that he's also a judge and he's also a restorer. So last week, Jesus and this massive crowd and this brand new disciple, Bartimaeus, they left Jericho on foot. You can see the pathway there behind me. And they traveled a grueling day-long journey. That's about 30 kilometers there, but it's also 3,500 feet in elevation. We were talking about that. Going uphill to Jerusalem, uphill to the cross, and they're now within sight of the glorious temple and the gates of the holy city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in, in the first 11 verses here this morning is that Jesus came for a royal coronation. And it's going to tell us and teach us that he's the redeeming king. He came for a royal coronation, and he is the redeeming king. Verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus came for a royal coronation because he is the redeeming king. So the first thing we're seeing here in the text is that as him and his disciples draw near to Jerusalem, it says that they come to Bethpage, Bethany at the Mount of Olives. We're seeing four really uh, distinct locations here. We had a map up there, and it kind of shows you uh, the, the, 
vicinity. We got Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Bethpage, and Bethany. Between Bethpage and Bethany is the Mount of Olives, all within about a kilometer and a half of Jerusalem. Now, because we're separated by 2,000 years of history, 10,000 kilometers in distance from here to, to there, we need to try to wrap our heads around the scene. First, it says that they're drawing near to Jerusalem. We know that's the destination. Jesus revealed that. But like other great cities, Jerusalem had its outlying areas, had kind of like suburbs and villages like we do here in Calgary. We have Okotoks and, and, uh, and Cochrane and Strathmore, Chestermere, those kinds of places, Airdrie. So as Jesus gets closer to the big city from the east, he runs into a little hamlet on the road, uh, which is about two and a half kilometers out, and that's Bethany. And then we see him continuing on the road, rounding to the south side of the Mount of Olives, and he comes to the village of Bethpage. And now the name Bethpage literally means house of unripe figs, which is going to be interesting here in a little bit. And that little village is about a kilometer from the city. So from the text, what we're seeing here is Jesus and his disciples arriving on the Mount of Olives, and Bethpage is below them, and Jerusalem is across the Kidron Valley, and they can, get, they can almost see the walls from where they are. And this is extremely important that they're on the Mount of Olives. If you remember the Mount of Olives, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, which even to this day has olive trees growing that are that date back all the way to the time of Christ. It's the place where Jesus and his disciples would be spending their nights. It's where he prays. It's where he begins to experience the wrath of God for sin of mankind. He begins sweating drop blood or drops of blood. It's where he's going to be betrayed by a kiss. It's where he's going to be arrested. And so as Jesus and his disciples arrive at this place, it's an extremely important place. But that's going to be later. First, we see that he's going to plan his actions to enter the city. And so he lays out his next move. He plans to send two of his disciples. We don't know which two, but he sends two. And he calls them to go into the village in front of you. That's Bethpage. And then immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. He wants them to untie it and, and bring it to him, and uh, he knows people are going to question this. Like, if you're trying to take somebody's horse, somebody's going to see something and say something. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So we see the Lord here giving instructions. We can see that he is sovereign over this whole situation. We can see him orchestrating every step and every detail, and it's all meant to point towards one massive statement he is going to make, that he is the creator of the universe, he is the son of God, he is the king. And as creator of the universe, just like when he was on the Sea of Galilee and the water held him up, so he can demand anything to come to him. And so that colt comes to him, and it's going to be divinely used to tell something great. Jesus needs a colt. He needs a colt, the text says, which nobody has ever sat. In Matthew's gospel, it says that it's not just a colt, it's a colt of a donkey. Now, at first, we may just kind of chalk this detail up to a detail. It's just, 
It's something maybe even strange or unimportant that he wants a donkey, a colt of a donkey. But this detail is extremely important to the story. You see, the fact that Jesus is about to ride an unbroken donkey colt is direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As the prophet Zechariah prophesied some 500 years before this, he prophesied about a coming king that would deliver Israel from her enemies. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as Jesus is instructing his, his disciples to get this colt, he's revealing much more than just having tired legs. He's fulfilling the very promises and prophecies that prophets spoke about him. That he is the one coming to Jerusalem. He is that humble king. That he is the righteous one. That he is coming to bring salvation. He is the redeeming king. That's who he is. Not only is this prophesied about in Zechariah, but even as far back as Genesis, we see connections. We see connections with Jacob as he blesses his sons in Genesis 49. He prophesied about a lion of Judah coming, right? A lion from one of his sons. And Jesus is the lion of Judah. Listen to Genesis 49, 10 to 11. The scepter shall not depart far from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This text is dripping, dripping with messianic overtones, and, and this colt of a donkey cannot be overlooked. Is so important. On top of that, contrary to what we would normally think, maybe we would think that Jesus should be coming to Jerusalem on a horse. I mean, this is a donkey. Well, up to the time of King David, donkeys were royal animals. And it wasn't until the later Hebrew kings that they started riding horses as they were starting to follow the world. The donkey was a royal animal. So what we're seeing here is that this donkey is more than a donkey, right? It's more than just mere convenience. What's abundantly clear here is that Jesus is going public. He's making a statement. And the fact that he's riding an unbroken donkey colt into the city is just screaming that he is the king, that he is royal that he is a redeeming king. I love how all of Scripture is bound together and read as one redemptive story is always teaching about our king, Jesus Christ. And so as his two disciples obediently do as he asks, verse 4 says they went away, they found a colt at the, tied outside on the street, just like Jesus said, right? They untie it, just like Jesus commanded, and some people standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt, right? And they told them, the Lord, curios, 
master has need of it, and these people let it go. There was no fuss, there was no contention. Kim and I were shopping the other day in the bay, and, and I thought I'd seen a lady grab a jacket off uh, a rack and put it on like she was going to steal it. And so I started to think, well, I better watch this. So I was sort of walking to the door to see if she was going to steal it. Same idea, if somebody's stealing uh, something, bystanders are going to watch, right? They're not going to let somebody take something. But the master had need of this colt, and the people let him go. There was no fuss, there was no contention, just as Jesus said. And they brought the colt of Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus sits on the colt, just as he planned. All things being orchestrated by his divine plan to make a statement. This was his day. This was his sovereign plan. He is boldly declaring, without words, but with a donkey, that he is the promised redeeming king. He is the saving Messiah. And the crowds began to take notice. As the disciples put their cloaks on the donkey out of honor and reverence, the crowds begin throwing their own cloaks and branches on the ground so that the king's holy donkey can walk on them, throwing it off. It's a sign of reverence. The king is here. Verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from fields. This is likely palm branches. This is where we get Palm Sunday from, right? And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The symbolic act of Jesus Christ was producing praise. As Jesus got closer and closer to the gates of Jerusalem, more and more people were joining in the celebration It was a procession for a king. It was a coronation. He has come to his own, and up to this point, it seems that they are receiving him. Now, as you remember that the Queen of England's coronation at the beginning of our sermon, what were the crowds shouting as she would go by? God save the queen. Well, when Jesus rode by on a donkey, the shouts of the crowd were similar. Except, instead of shouting, God save the king, they were shouting in Aramaic, Hosanna, which literally means, save us, we pray, save us, redeem us, deliver us. They want salvation. They want this king to save them. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, save us in the highest. They were declaring a psalm of deliverance. Psalm 118, like we already read. They're singing some of the words from Psalm 118, that it has come and it has been fulfilled. It's being fulfilled on this day. We read that this morning, just looking at verse 25 to 26 of the psalm we read this morning. It says in verse 25, save us, we pray. Oh Lord, oh Lord, we pray. Give us success. That's exactly what they're saying with the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray. They're saying in their own language, in Aramaic. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The saving king has finally come. Save us, we pray. This was being sung and shouted over and over again as the crowds grew from behind and in front. They're shouting this back and forth, Hosanna, save us, until he enters the city and he enters the temple. Jesus is the only Savior. He is the only King. He is the deliverer of God's people. He's your only Savior. He's your only hope. And he has come. Are you looking to him alone? Are you seeing how all of this is fulfilled in only one person, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David? He's the only one in all of the universe that our hearts have been longing for to be saved. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one from the very beginning who has promised all the way back to Genesis 3.16, if you remember, there was that promise of somebody coming right after Adam and Eve sinned, but there was a promise that there's somebody coming who's going to crush the head of Satan. We had the gospel from the very beginning, and here he is coming to his own. And my question to you is, are you hearing him? Are you seeing him? Is he your Savior King? Is he your Redeemer? And as you see him, are you resounding in shouts of praise Lord, save us. Lord, save me. If you don't see it, if you reject it, if, if you don't believe in him, Romans says that you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. That you're blinded by your sin, just like Bartimaeus was last week. But this bold declaration on the back of a donkey, it may seem absurd to the world, but it's the glorious good news of Jesus Christ to us, for those who believe. And the world needs to hear about this. The world needs to hear about this, this man on a donkey, this God-man who came to his own as the Savior of the world. It's the most glorious truth that we could ever share. The world needs to hear about it. Because he came to save his people, and he's still saving his people today, and he saves them through you as you go and share that good news. He is our king. He is humble, but he's royal. He was promised, and he is fulfilled. He's the one who left heaven, who put on flesh to walk in our place, to take our sin upon himself in his death, he takes the wrath of God and he dies, taking your sin upon his shoulders. You should have had those nails in your hands, but he took them so willingly and so royally for you. Then he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And our question is, is do we know him? Do we really know him? Do we believe in him? Have we turned away from our sin and trusted him because he's your king? So this was a holy, royal coronation, him coming to the city, riding on a donkey. He is the redeeming king. Now as he gets closer and closer to the city gates, and even more so as he gets closer to the temple, 
it seems like it all comes to a crashing end. Verse 11 says, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It just seems really anticlimactic, doesn't it? Outside the gates, he's a celebrity, but inside, there's nothing happening. The closer he gets to the holy house of God, there is no acclaim, there is no praise. It's like that sound bite, you know, when a cymbal crashes to the ground. Kind of strange. No shouts, no palm branches, no cloaks being thrown down on the floor, nothing. Why all of this fuss outside, but when he gets inside, nothing. Well, Mark doesn't really say. He just paints a picture for us that the place that should have been the most ready to receive her king was the most empty of God's presence. And so Jesus just looks around. It's getting late. And then he leaves, goes back out to spend the night outside of the city. He goes to Bethany with the 12. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, said to this fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. His disciples heard it. As Jesus is in the shadow of the temple... As he returns to the city and is intending on going to the temple, he stops, and we see him taking notice of this fig tree. What we're seeing him here is that he's, we're seeing a condemning curse on a fig tree. And what it's revealing to us is that Jesus is the righteous judge. He is the righteous judge. As he and his disciples spent that night out in Bethany, Even though Jesus is 100% God, he is also 100% man and he gets hungry. And as his stomach is reminding him about his hunger, he sees this tree that's in leaf, it's a fig tree, and he takes the opportunity to again teach his disciples, teaching them for what's coming in the near future. We see this lonely, figless tree And it becomes the target of his lesson. He was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. So he goes to this tree and he can't find any figs on it. Nothing but leaves, it says. It wasn't the season for figs. The tree looks healthy. It looks promising. But there's no fruit. Verse 14, he says to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So this isn't a lesson about horticulture, right? And this isn't just a lesson that Jesus is hungry. Yes, we know he is 100% God, 100% man. He was hungry. This was a lesson about fruit. Not real fruit. Spiritual fruit. You see, the fig tree in Jewish history was used throughout Scripture, to speak of the fruitfulness or fruitlessness of Israel. As Judah was about to be overtaken by Babylon, 
The prophet Jeremiah prophesies of a coming judgment. Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, fruitless, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Jeremiah 29, 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, judgment, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Micah 7, 1, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul Desires. This is always speaking of judgment and comparing the fruitlessness of Israel in their sin, comparing it to figs and fruit. So as Jesus sees this tree in leaf from a distance, it looks great, it looks healthy, it looks fruitful. But upon close inspection, no fruit has been produced. Nothing of true substance or sustenance can be taken off of that tree and used to nourish anybody. As Jesus inspected the temple the night before, that temple would have looked glorious. It would have looked amazing. Look at the picture of the temple, I believe, there somewhere. Take a look at the picture of the temple. This is... King Herod's temple on your right. It was outwardly amazing. It was beautiful. No expense was spared. Gold, Corinthian pillars, marble, precious stones. Architecturally beautiful, like you've never seen. It was a wonder of the world at that time. But like the tree, as Jesus was examining the temple the night before, like the tree, it looked so marvelous from a distance. But just as that praise was silenced as Jesus got closer to the temple, what we're seeing is this outward glory with all of its promises was utterly empty and void of fruit. It was barren. It bore nothing. The tree becomes a foreshadow of God's coming judgment on empty religiosity. He went to see if he could find anything on the tree. He came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. God, Jesus in his sovereignty, knows all about this. He uses the tree as an example. It's not the season for figs. It's not the time for harvest in Israel. It's dead. It's fruitless. Verse 14, he, and then he curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They heard this condemning curse, even though it would have puzzled him, puzzled them. It was a curse that judges the outward beauty when it's inwardly empty. God hates empty religion. He hates hypocrisy. 
The temple that he ordained was to be a place where his presence would be with his people, where they would come to him and sacrifice to him and believe him by faith. But just as Israel always has, they fell into the empty ritual rather than fruitful faith. This was Israel's ongoing spiritual cancer. And it grieves the Lord. To the point of judgment, Isaiah 1, 13 to 14. This is God's heart towards hypocrisy. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. You can't have sin and worship me at the same time. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. He hates hypocrisy. Amos 5, 21 to 23. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. This temple was to be a place of true worship. But all that Jesus found was vain religion. God hates empty religion. He hates hypocrisy. So we ask ourselves, are we like Israel? Are we polishing the outside of the cup, but we're inwardly dirty? Are we whitewashed tombs? Are we empty temples? Are we fruitless trees? Are we sacrificing to him in vain, worshiping him not in spirit and truth? We need to examine ourselves because just like Israel, we have this spiritual cancer. We need to ask ourselves, where's the fruit? Where's the harvest? Where's that inward change? Where's the holiness? Where's the joy? Where's the satisfaction? Where's that longing for God's presence? At that time, God's presence wasn't even in that temple. Are we satisfied with just keeping up appearances, with looking the part, with putting on smiles, with pretending? Brothers and sisters, our, our lives, in our, in, in our lives and, and with our families and with our church and with our own interaction with the world, ask yourself, is God producing fruit in you? Can the world see it? Are they seeing fruit that is good? Fruit that is godly. Fruit that is attractive. As I look around this room, and, and I know most of you, I, I, I see God producing fruit. Be encouraged. God is producing fruit here in you. I see, I see you growing in your faith. I see you being concerned with your sin, broken over sin. I see you walking in repentance and faith. We see people being healed by the effects of sin in their life. I see you being burdened for the gospel, burdened for the world, burdened for God's glory, desiring his presence. That's good. The Lord is producing fruit. Know that. It is being seen. I can see that. I pray that you're seeing that as well. But he gets all the praise for that. And so we celebrate that together. But that also doesn't mean that there's more, more work to be done, right? 
There's lots of more work to be done in our life by the Lord. How do I know that? Because when I open up God's word, which is a mirror of his character, and then I see myself, I see that there's a lot of work, a lot of work left to be done. I see areas where there may be leaves growing. It may look good on the outside, but upon careful inspection of my own heart, I see that there is fruit lacking. I see shady areas where sin is still inhibiting, infesting the soil. Weeds of darkness are still choking out the seed. And so let me ask you, how about yourself? When you see God's word and you see his beautiful, glorious, holy character, and then you see yourself, are you seeing some of these same things as well? There's a lot of work left to be done. As you inspect yourself, do you look spiritually healthy from a distance, but when people come for a closer inspection, there is no fruit? So we need to ask ourselves, are we religiously fluffing up the leaves? Are we trying to cover up the fact that spiritual fruit is lacking in our lives? Are we sounding the part? Are we looking the part? Are we having heads full of biblical knowledge, but we're not walking in the Spirit? Is that what the Lord wants? A theologian that I don't, I don't know his name, he once said, God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. He wants spiritual fruit. He doesn't want heads full of his knowledge but are unchanged in the heart. So we ask ourselves, as a church, we want to grow. And we're not talking numbers. If the Lord blesses us with numbers, that's great. We're talking about spiritual growth, spiritual fruit, spiritual transformation in our lives. The kind of stuff that cannot be produced by ourselves. It has to be produced by the Spirit. It's Galatians 5 kind of fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, we may try to do these things in the outside of our flesh, but it's all useless unless it's truly being born of the Spirit. It's all in vain. And the Lord knows it, and he will judge it. Matthew 7, 19 to 23. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. If there is no spiritual fruit, it's revealing that we are workers of lawlessness. As Jesus cursed the tree, he's showing his disciples and he's showing us, he's showing his people that they're spiritually dead. The people in the city, the people who are following vain religion are spiritually dead. And God hates empty, fruitless religiosity. And he will have his day. In fact, when it comes to the fig tree, when it comes to the city, when it comes to the temple, think of that gleaming, beautiful temple, right? The epicenter of God's presence. It's going to be destroyed. No stone is going to be left unturned on that temple 
Remember in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. All the stones were torn down. And to this day, there's another group of worshipers with their temple on top of it. And the Jews would be, dis- would be scattered, and they were going to be persecuted. It was a condemning curse because he is the righteous judge. And so as he continues past that cursed fig tree and he enters the temple, the last thing we see here about this king, we're going to see, we're going to witness a fervent cleansing. We're going to see that he is the restoring son. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. So if we put that picture back up of the temple, you're going to see that he entered into the great court of the Gentiles. You look at the temple, that big section of openness there, that was the court of the Gentiles. It was paved with marble. Um, it was open to the sky. It was about 500 yards long by 325 yards wide. Americans always measure this in football fields, three football fields. And it was the only part of the temple that Gentiles were allowed to enter. Now, the other three parts of the temple um, was the court of women where Jewish women could go. And then we have the the court of the Israelites that was only circumcised male Jews. And then at the very center, the Holy of Holies, where the priests would minister. It's here in this court of the Gentiles where Jesus begins to unleash his righteous fury. It says he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So this court of the Gentiles... It, it, at this time, it, it, was a, it was a stock market of, for meat, a stock market for sacrifices. It was, it was a place where you would come and purchase sacrificial animals, and it was also a place to exchange foreign money for temple money. So when you're thinking about all of these Jews coming from all of the known world, they didn't bring animal sacrifices with them. And this ruling council of the temple provided a convenient market to sell all of these people worthy sacrifices. So as Jews came from all over the known world, like the crowds that were on the road with Jesus right in Jericho, they have to have an animal sacrifice when they come for Passover. And this was a massive Undertaking at that time, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Jewish pilgrims pilgrims needed a sacrifice. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus recorded that on one Passover in AD 65, there was 255,600 lambs slaughtered. Now, if you're to calculate and convert those numbers into people, That's enough sacrifice for 2.7 million people coming one year for Passover. They were coming to celebrate the Passover. 2.7 million people. So when you're thinking about the crowds in Jerusalem and the fact that Jesus and them have to go sleep outside, you can see why. So many people and every Jewish man who, who would come would also have to pay a half shekel temple tax. But as they came from all of these foreign lands within the Roman Empire, the money they had was Roman money, right? 
And Roman money had the face of the empire on it, and the Jews believed that was an idolatrous thing to do, and they wouldn't accept that. And so you'd have to bring your Roman money, just like the denarius from last week, you'd have to exchange it for temple money. And on top of that would be an exchange fee, of course. It was a lucrative business. Everything had its fee. Everything had its tax. And also, these animals that they were marketing as pure weren't so pure. They were often sick, and they were often overpriced. And the text here mentions that there was pigeons. Many could not afford to pay for a lamb. And so they would provide sacrificial animals like birds for the poor, and then they would overcharge them as well. In the end, what started as an essential, convenient service ends up becoming a lucrative business. You see, the temple was under the control of the chief priests and the scribes. And yes, they needed money to maintain the temple, to care for the thousands of priests that worked there. But beyond that, they were lining their own pockets. And it became a place for greedy gain, not a temple of the living God. It was a temple of idolatry. And Jesus knows this. Jesus saw this. It was meant to be a place for worship, but it became a place for greed. Man was seeking glory. They weren't giving glory to God. And so what does Jesus do? It says, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's shutting the place down. He's angry. He is righteously angry, justifiably angry. And so he takes action. And he expresses his frustration and his anger because God's glory is being stolen. Verse 17, while he was doing this, he was teaching them why he was so upset. And saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's stating that instead of worship, instead of praying to God, you're praying on people. You're a bunch of thieves. You're supposed to be worshiping God, but instead you're worshiping money, stuff, self-glory. If you want to get God angry, turn his faith into your gain. If you want to boil Jesus' blood, use his word, use Christianity, use your faith to line your own pockets, to feed your greed, to feed your ego. You see, this temple was originally constructed to be a shining light to the world. That the world would come and taste and see that the Lord is good. When God built this, he put it smack dab in the very epicenter of the known world at that time. It was meant to be a place, a witness, a place for true sacrifice, true worship, true faith. But his very own people turn it into a market for their own gain. That's why he quotes Isaiah 56. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? For who? For all the nations. For all the nations. 
It was supposed to be a testimony for the watching world of God's faithfulness to his people, but they turned it into a testimony of greed. They turned it into the prosperity gospel. You sacrifice, we prosper. You give, we get the glory. This turns the tables over in the mind of God. If you want to see God get angry, turn his gracious gospel into your own selfish gain. As I think about this, I think about how this is so prevalent today. That temple is long gone. It was destroyed in 70 AD, but the den of robbers is still alive today. You can look at the Roman Catholic Church. Still selling indulgences, still selling tickets to heaven for money, for things. We have the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, fleecing the flocks, fleecing the poor as they buy mansions and planes and jets for ministry. God is angry at this. If you haven't watched the the movie American Gospel, that can be your homework this week. Just Google it. You can rent it. American Gospel. Watch it. God has righteous anger as to what is going on, this perversion of his gospel, this selfish greed. These so-called pastors and leaders in these false churches, they're not brothers and sisters. They're not. They're charlatans. They're frauds. They're fleecing the flock. They're leading millions astray. They're leading people with one hand to believe a gospel that doesn't save while having their other hand in their back pocket taking their money. Greedy gain. Hypocrisy. God hates it. He hates his name being used for evil. But he will have his day. So as Jesus takes control of the temple here, we see him disrupting everything, stopping it all. We see his righteous anger coming forth. But what we also see is his restoring heart. Jesus wants his father's house to become what? To be a house of prayer. To be a house of worship. A temple of worship. And so he begins to turn things upside down. He flips the tables. He's showing us here is that he is the one who is going to restore all things. He's the one who's going to stop the idolatry. He is the only son of God. He is the only one who can restore right worship to our glorious God of heaven. He is the restorer. And he's not going to restore by some military coup. He's not going to lead them on a horse and overthrow Rome. The way that he overthrows starts in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You see, the people here are beginning to understand. And then evening comes. And they go out of the city. Jesus is 
the redeeming king. He is the righteous judge. He is the restoring son. And he is the one who restores rightful worship through what? Through his sacrificial death. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Rome is going to destroy him. The chief priests here are planning right now. How are we going to destroy this guy? All the people are starting to listen to him. We can't take this. We need to destroy him. But what they don't understand is their own plans to destroy is God's plan. As he sovereignly uses them for his good. Jesus came to live. He came to die. He came to rise from the grave to redeem lost sinners like you and me. To reconcile them back to himself. For what purpose? To restore worship to God. For our good, but for his glory. So as the world loves to celebrate people and stuff, just think back to that coronation of the queen. Great processions for stuff, for people here. There was only one who came in humble royal procession that deserves the glory, who deserves the greater worship. There is only one who deserves our deepest praises and affections, and it is our Lord Jesus, our King. And through his royal coronation, ask yourself, am I crying out to God, Hosanna, God save me, God save us, as he curses that tree? Are you examining yourself for spiritual fruit? And through the flipping of these tables in the temple, are you examining your own heart? for idolatry, for hypocrisy. Jesus came to rule. Jesus came to judge. But he also came to restore. And he's still restoring. Revelation says he is making all things new. He is our redeeming king. He is our righteous judge. He is the restoring son Let's walk in repentance and faith after him. Let's walk in reverence by the Spirit. And let's worship him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this testimony of your faithfulness. That even before you created us, you knew that we were going to sin against you. And you chose to send your son. And you chose to save us by your grace. And we see this at the very center of all history. In the center of the world, Jesus Christ mounts a donkey, a royal donkey, and walks into the city to the praises of the people. But your temple was spiritually void. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God and that you save us. We cry out in our hearts today, Lord, save us. Continue to sanctify us and change us by your glory. Continue to restore us. Continue to judge us just to to root out the sin that remains so that we can turn away from it and turn to you by the strength of your spirit, by your word. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word today. Use it this week. May it drive us to repentance and faith, to believe in you, but also to turn around and share the good news of this Messiah King, this redeeming 
king, this righteous judge, this restoring son, the glorious good news for the world. We pray this in the name of his holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.